and we read in verse 11 now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said of him, who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Father, we ask your blessing on our brother James as he comes to uh, open up your word to us and be with the teachers in Kids Church too as they open up the word to our young people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Alistair. Uh, so, last week uh, in Hebrews, we, uh, we talked about giving our best to God, didn't we? And uh, thank you that nobody got up uh, and left when I said we were going to talk about uh, tithing and giving. And uh, I hope that you've been doing that this week, uh, giving your best to God and continue to do so. Because, as we said, uh, it's right and it is good to give our best to the Lord. Our time, our talent, and our tithe, uh, He deserves our very best uh, each and every day. Today, then, we, uh, we continue in Hebrews and we see Jesus likened to Melchizedek, the characteristics that they share, and that really... Uh, fundamentally, Jesus is a better way. So that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to answer a couple of questions. First, why? Why is Jesus a better way? And then why is Jesus greater than the old way of doing things? Now, obviously, we're going to see in these particular verses why Jesus is, bet is a better way of doing things than how these people were doing things at the, at the time, uh, because as we've said a couple of times, the Bible was written uh, by real people to real people in very specific uh, 
context. But as we move through this and we see why it was better than what they were doing, uh, I want you to think about the way that you used to do things, the way you do some things now, uh, how you think about your life. Uh, is there a better way to do so? So maybe you're here and you're just not sure. Maybe you're just not sure why Jesus is a better way. Why should I get in line with this man and what he says and what he teaches? Uh, why is he all that those Christians uh, talk about? Why is he so central? And uh, what is so special um, about this man? So we'll see. The first thing we'll see then is we'll see that God is setting up a new order of doing things. Uh, and we'll read again verses 11 to 14. So as Alistair said, we're in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, it's about 18, 90% through your Bible. As Alistair said, it's the 58th book. And uh, if you're following along on the Bible app, uh, then this is all there for you. So we're in Hebrews 7 and we'll read again 11 to 14 and we'll see this new order. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So when we read the term uh, Levitical priesthood, it, it's simply talking about the, the Jewish priesthood of the Old Testament, the way that they were doing things uh, in relation to God, how they, thought, uh, how they thought you get to God. It's called Levitical because uh, just most of the instructions for that thing for the Old Testament priesthood are found in the book uh, of Leviticus. If you've never read it, it's, uh, it's, a good, it's a good book. I know some people like reading it and some people are not, not so keen. So the priesthood then, uh, their way of doing things in relation to God, how do we view ourselves in relation to God, what we're going to do to get right with God, uh, had to be replaced, simply. It had to be replaced because it could never produce godly character in its followers. It told you all that was wrong in your lives, but left you powerless to actually change it. And when you say that out loud, it doesn't sound very nice, does it? It tells this thing, whatever, whatever it is, it tells you all that's wrong with you, but gives you no power to change it. It's like a teacher at school who uh, grades your work with a big, fat, red pen and says, no, no, no but doesn't offer any instruction or any help or any power to change. And uh, we would view those people as a bad teacher, wouldn't you? You just zero, 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 cross, 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 and take this back. And again, everybody had a teacher like that, and uh, I would confidently assume that they weren't your favorite teacher, that one that just put red pen all over your work. So we read, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, so if it was good enough, if it was able to do all that it promised and intended to do, there would have been no need for this Melchizedek-type priest to come along, would there? Uh, his, his brief 
one-time appearance with uh, the man who was counted as righteous by faith, Abraham, uh, that would have been enough, wouldn't it? Uh, but it, but it, wasn't, it wasn't the only time that we see him. And it shows us the need for a different order of priesthood, a different class of person, a different kind of person. So we, we need a new way of doing things. The old way that promised so much delivers so little uh, in terms of satisfaction, of spiritual growth, of future security, peace with God, relationship with God. It just comes up short in, uh, in lots and lots of ways. And this is, so, this is so easy for us to apply to us in our individual, former way of doing things, wherever we're from, whatever we used to do, whatever we are still doing and, uh, and hoping that nobody finds out about. There is a better way to live your life than how we used to do things. There is a new order for us to, a new way for us to draw near uh, to God. As the people here in Hebrews, that's what they sought to do through the, the Levitical priesthood and that system of doing it. In Psalm 110 verse 4, God talks of a priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek, the class, the same kind, and the sheer fact that God talks about this coming priest of a different kind is, is quite clear evidence, is it, that change is needed, because if change was not needed, it wouldn't have happened. So the fact that God talks about, you are a priest forever, this coming redeemer, this coming savior, this coming rescuer, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the fact that he said that after the institution of the priesthood is really clear to us that something more was needed, and this stuff, the old way of doing things was not was just not cutting it. So I want to give you a big word. I'm going to give you two big words to take home today. The first one is capricious. It's kind of nice to say, isn't it? Capricious. God is not capricious. That means that he doesn't change his mind whenever he feels like it, just because he wants to, without any good reason. His mood, his behavior, his thinking, his plans, his purposes, his will, and his word don't just change just because he feels like it i'm god i can do what i like that's just not what he's about so when he says look in psalm 110 when he says look there is more to come there is a better way of doing things and this eternal priest this this guy is coming change is needed he means it and he's thought about it and it's the best way to do things and it works out the best for us and it glorifies him the most because that's how he does things. So when change is needed, it's because it's actually needed. God just doesn't change things just because he wants to. If we take the Bible, for example, love the Bible. Uh, in, in it, we carry around the complete and closed revealing of God's word to us, don't we? Which is mad. We carry this book around, things that God has said. Anyway, uh, nothing he ever does God, uh, nothing God ever does will contradict His Word to us. Nothing will supplement, nothing will undermine it. It's all He wants us to know right now. And if you go somewhere and they tell you that the Bible is not full and complete and rich, and the Bible is just a compass from which you've got, or with which you've got to find your own way, that's wrong. The Bible is a map. Start to finish. It's not a compass for you to go off and blaze your own trail. Anyway, 
It's all we need to know right now. Does God still speak to us? Sure, I believe that He does. But does He give us private prophecy that contradicts the explicit teachings and principles found in the Bible? No. God is a God of non-contradiction. Anyway, the Bible. So, the Old Testament finishes with this idea that there is more to come. Things are not finished. The last verse, or the last verses of the Old Testament finish with a curse. God's people are in crisis. And there's this sense and there's a promise that there is more to come. And this would really upset people. This would really, this did upset ancient Jews to the point where they'd read this. And then they'd read verse 5 again because it's just a little bit nicer. And we shouldn't finish on something that's so sad. So in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Sounds quite nice. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Which is also quite nice. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Which is not very nice. So they'd read that again utter destruction. But Elijah's coming. It's going to be good. So that was, that, that was it. For 400 years, this period, intertestamental times, last book of the Old Testament, first book of the New Testament, 400 years. No move of God, no word from God. Any literature that claims to be from God in that period is not because it doesn't match all the checks and balances and uh, it's just not been included in the canon of Scripture. So the last verses of the Old Testament finish with the curse that more is coming. This, this is not it. I'm going to read you a couple of verses from Revelation, and then I'm going to show you one as well. But first, Revelation uh, 22, 12, Jesus is talking. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then in verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So even that is more complete. There's nothing else coming but him. Then as we get to Revelation 22, 18, we read, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So see, at the end of the Old Testament, change was needed. New order was needed. Change was needed and Jesus was needed. At the end of the New Testament, the, the, the record of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, ministry, and influence, we see that it's, it is finished. There is nothing else talked about as, as being needed to come. Change is no longer needed. The order will remain as it is with Him. He testified to that Himself. Uh, Isaac Newton said, everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. And in this situation, and in our lives, God is the force. God wanted change. 
at the end of the Old Testament. God wanted a different order. He knew there was a different way of doing things and a better way of doing things. And that's what promised to come at the end of the Old Testament. And that's what we see as having arrived at the end of the New Testament. We read in verse 12 here that when there's a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So this is not just some simple uh, change of, of family. Not Jesus coming to now be our priest under this old way of doing things, under the law. This is, uh, this is a fundamental power shift, a paradigm shift in who is really responsible for everything. Is it us and the priest that we're trying to work towards stuff? Or is it, as Paul writes, it's, it's him. Him we preach. A complete and total change in the way of doing things of this new order and in, uh, in Colossians 1, Paul says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. So we established last week, didn't we, that to be associated with Abraham is to be one who finds salvation, instant justification ongoing sanctification and ultimately glorification through faith alone, aside from the works of the law. And we said that even Abraham, the, the patriarch, the, the head of the family, the example setter, he acknowledged Jesus as far superior, this Melchizedek type, eternal and everlasting priest, as greater because he freely and willingly gave to him and he freely and willingly accepted blessings from this man, this Melchizedek-type eternal priest. So change is needed. A new order is needed. God said so. God promised it would come to bring change of this size, of this magnitude. There needs to be a new office, a revamp of the office. We'll read again verses 15 to 17, and as part of this change that God has instituted and is bringing about, a new and permanent office is being created and revealed. So verses 15 to 17, this, this being verse 14, the fact that Jesus was never going to come and serve as a temple priest, this, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus' priesthood, this office he now holds, our great, eternal, perfect high priest, is not of the flesh, is not temporary, but it's by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, it's without end, it's eternal, forever, it's, he holds this office forever and ever and ever eternally by the power of an indestructible life. And you think, how is his life indestructible? He's, we're talking about his resurrection by, the way, by way of the fact that he is God. God in the flesh, God incarnate, and the power that brings. I'm going to talk, talk a little bit about this, the, the power that this brings. It's not often... Uh, that we talk about particular Greek words or particular Hebrew words because most of the time we just, we just don't really need to, do we, in the, in the context of, uh, of preaching God's Word. But sometimes the, the one word, the study of one individual word can be very, very illuminating 
So today we're going to look, I'm going to, we're going to talk about one word, and the purpose of this is kind of double-edged. Uh, on the one hand, I want to show you what it doesn't mean, where people get this horribly wrong, and on the other hand, I want to show you what it means, because it brings to life this part of the text in particular. So, the office that Jesus holds is eternal. Why is he a better way? Well, it's on the foundation of the power of an indestructible life. Where we read power, the word you can see behind me now is dunamis. Would you say that with me? Okay, that's very good. This was terrible because I was looking this way. So would you say that with me? Dunamis. So we've learned capricious, a bit of English, and now dunamis, this Greek word, not dynamite. Jesus didn't have a dynamite life. This is not what we're talking about. We don't, need to be, we don't need to be dynamite for God. That's not, no. You, some people are giggling, you must have heard that before. This is, that's reverse thinking. Dynamite didn't exist 2,000 years ago, did it? So Jesus could not be described as having lived a life full of dynamite. Because dynamite didn't exist. You were the dynamite of God. You blow stuff up. No. No, 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 no. It's just, we're not even going to go down that road. Jesus is a priest because of his dynamite life? No. That's, that's not what it means. When people say, this word literally means dynamite. It's, no, 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 it doesn't. Dynamite comes from this word. Words don't literally mean one thing, do they? That's not how words work. They've got words of a range of meanings. Anyway, dynamite. Jesus had a dynamite personality. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he was a pretty cool guy to hang out with. But it's not right, is it? The anonymous writer or preacher to the Hebrews can't have meant Jesus' priesthood is based on his dynamite life because dynamite didn't exist. Dunamis speaks of God's power, divine power, miraculous power, which Jesus had, which Jesus was, and which Jesus is being God in the flesh. Amen? We are not talking about Jesus' dynamite personality. His priesthood, his eternal office is based on the fact that his life is everlasting, that he has an everlasting, indestructible, miraculous, power-filled life. Amen? Not his dynamite personality. And if anybody tells you you've got to be dynamite for God, just say no. And then leave. And don't go back to wherever that was. Uh, so before Abraham was, we see back in God's word, there is Jesus. He is that he is that he is. Or he said, I am that I am that I am. His life is eternal and everlasting. It's not like a priest who is a priest because of who their dad's 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 dad was. There's no legal requirement concerning bodily descent because that's fleshly. That's according to the flesh. That's thinking like men and women and just us people think. His legal lineage. Jesus' priesthood, his eternal office, is based on his eternal life. So who, who better to, to minister to us, to serve us, to represent us before God? Who, who better? And this logically comes from Psalm 110 again. We're going back to that. God would never introduce a new priesthood and change the office and fundamentally do away with everything if it was inferior, would he? You don't bring in change to make things worse. 
And when you think about it, it's so logical. Nobody here goes into a, phone, a mobile phone shop, a cell phone shop, some might say, and says, look, I've got this phone. It seems to be doing well. On the surface, it's all right. It does the job, I think. Uh, but do you know what? I'm gonna, I want a new phone. I'm going to get a new phone that's just not quite as good. I'm going to trade in this good one. Maybe it rings in church. You're going to trade it in. <laughs> Maybe you get a new one with a silence button. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Nobody goes in with a brand new phone and says, I want to trade it in for an old one. Less features. Shorter self-life. Worse battery. Worse 1990s ringtones. Worse features. I want a phone that is just not as good. Bring out your Nokia 3210s. Take my iPhone. Give me a Nokia. Nobody does that, do they? Because we inherently know that when we change things, we want to change things for the better, don't we? God works all things together, we read in Romans, for the good of those who love him. So is this change of priesthood for our good? Yes, absolutely. The change from priests holding this office due to who the granddaddy's daddy, daddy, daddy was to Jesus, everlasting, eternal, and ineffable. Is that for our good? Yes, absolutely. Think about this. Jesus became a priest through his personal, moral, miraculous power, not legal requirement. The legal requirement of who became a priest could not ever guarantee that that guy, that individual, has godly character. The priest, who's, who's your dad's dad's granddad's granddad, could never guarantee that that man representing you before God has godly character, Were, that that guy was morally worthy of that office. So change was needed. A new office was needed. This was not and is not and never will be true of Jesus. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension are a wonderful demonstration of this dunamis power, this miraculous divine power that lives inside him. And it's one reason why the change needed was a new order to get him into this eternal office or the office of eternal high priest. So change was needed, new order, new office, and to show how sure this is, just to help us to see, because we like two, three, four levels, don't we, of, of checks and balances, to show how much surety this comes with, God gives an oath. And we've, we kind of touched on that in chapter 6, but we'll read again here verses 18 to 22, and we'll see that as part of this whole new thing that God was doing, an oath is sworn, a promise is given a new oath is put into action. So verse 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
So as we've talked about with the law, it's, it's, we, and we read here, it's, we read of its weakness and its uselessness and how it makes or made nothing perfect. It does a great job of showing us God's righteous and holy and perfectly high standard, but it doesn't give us the power, the ability to keep that standard, does it? It just sets the bar and leaves it. We read of its weakness and uselessness and how it made nothing perfect. So the logical thinking then is, is the law bad? Well, in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul talks about this in chapter 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is bad, that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the Lord said, you shall not covet. And Paul writes that without the law, then we wouldn't know what sin is. He gives the example of, of coveting, of wanting stuff that's not yours, you shouldn't really have, you don't really need. Uh, nobody knows what that is until, until you're told, don't covet. When you put a label to it, that's coveting. Stop it. Now we all know what covetousness is, and we find ourselves doing it all the time. And Paul writes, we find ourselves doing it all the time, calling it sin. Apart from the law, he goes on to say that sin lies dead. And what promised to be good and what promised abundant life actually turned out to be a holy and righteous standard that we can never, ever, ever reach. So think about this. We, on our own, even if we pool all our collective knowledge and wisdom and strengths, we, on our own, will never, ever reach God's righteous and holy standard. But there is a better way for us to get there. Instead of trying and trying and trying and inevitably failing, there is a better way to get there. A better office, guaranteed with an oath, and accessed by faith. Paul writes very, very clearly that the law itself is not sin. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the problem is us. There is nothing wrong with God's righteous and holy law and the standard that he desires, wants, deserves, the standard that he is. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is us. Us collective, but every single one of us is the problem. Sin corrupts the law. So as we've talked about in our devotional writings through Romans, we must die to both. Die to sin, die to the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is us. We need another way to become holy. We need another way to be seen as righteous by God, and we need another way to, to, to be good, essentially. So there was one, one person who lived that life. There was one who fulfilled to the last iota the holy, righteous, and good law. There was one who took upon himself the consequence of our sin and put it to death. There was one of whom God swore an oath and said, you are a priest forever. There is one, there is one who says, follow me. There is one who says, I am the way and I am the truth 
and I am the life, and that you are never, ever going to get there. You are never, ever, ever going to get right with God, aside from doing it with me. And there is one that says, abide in me, and I in you. And that one is Jesus. He is, he is our way to become alive apart from the law. He's our way to avoid the consequences that our natural sinful selves uh, deserve, get uh, the natural consequences. He is holding this office as eternal high priest before God. He's the one God swore an oath over and said, you are a priest forever. The law, we're never, ever, ever going to live up to it. It provides us with an expert diagnosis of our sin problem. It's like that teacher that writes on your page, this is rubbish, and gives you it back. But doesn't tell you how to get there. doesn't give you any help. And we need to see that. We need to see, we need to admit, and we need to repent of all the red ink. But the Lord doesn't provide a cure to the problem, help for the problem, and there's only Jesus can save us from our sin problem. Amen? So now then, Jesus, in Jesus, we've got a better hope, we read, through which we draw near to God. The law, you're doing it yourselves, this will never, ever, 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 ever give you a better hope of getting right with God, of getting to God. The order and the office and the oath of Jesus gives us hope. He, he gives us hope, no matter what we are going through. The law doesn't draw us near to God, the way that God's grace in Jesus does. We, as wandering sinners from God, find so much hope in Hebrews. We, who've got this natural tendency to, to wander, to drift, think about that, that great hymn, um, Come Thou Fount, we're prone to wander. In Hebrews, we find such a strong, anchor-like, and steadfast confidence for the future in Hebrews, because it's a book about Jesus, who is, as we read, the guarantor of a better covenant. And we'll talk about covenants a bit more in a few weeks. Uh, Andrew Murray writes, in every covenant there are two parties, and the very foundation of a covenant rests on the thought that each party is to be faithful to the part that it has undertaken to perform. Unfaithfulness on either side breaks the covenant. So we... All of us, we, naturally, are unfaithful. So God needed to put change into action. He needed, we needed change for our benefit. And through this new way of doing things, His new order, the new office he instituted based on the power of Jesus' indestructible eternal life, the oath He swore over Jesus, we have a chance to get right with Him, not on the basis of ourselves, because we are naturally unfaithful. If this covenant rested between God and us, we would break it, for sure. But it doesn't rest on us, it rests on Jesus. He now guarantees the new covenant. He is the promise, and He's also the promise keeper. He is faithful, and He is a better way of doing things. So, why is He a better way? Because through Him, as we read, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Why is He greater than the old way? Well, He is making and has the power to make all things new. And He will do that 
for you. He'll do that for us as a body, as a collective, as his church. But just as each and every one of us is unfaithful, he will make all things new in you and your lives as well. We see in this passage that God is setting up a new order of doing things as part of this. This new permanent and eternal office is revealed and that it's promised and it's sworn and it's put into action with an oath. So maybe, maybe you're not coming out of a Jewish background like these Hebrews were. Maybe you are. Maybe it doesn't even, it doesn't even matter the kind of background that you're coming from. The country that you're coming from the church background, how you used to do things, how you like to do things, whether you've even got a church background, doesn't really matter. All that matters is that each and every one of us accept the truth about Jesus, what God says about him, what he says about God, what he shows us about God, what the Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus, that you believe that he died for your sins And that you believe this in your heart and confess this in your mouth. And God's word to us tells us that if you believe this and confess this with your mouth, then you will be saved. There's nothing else to do. There's no special prayer, no special walk down the aisle at the end of the service. Believe that he did what he did and that he is who he says he is. So wherever you've come from, Wherever we've, we've all come from different places. No matter where we are at, down that discipleship walk, whether we're even on that walk yet, however you used to do things, however you do things now, whatever parts of your life you're not really proud of, whatever parts of your life you wouldn't want him coming back whilst you are doing, all that matters is that Jesus is the better way of doing things. That when he moves into our lives, the old is gone and it's dead, that your former way of doing things has been annulled as if it never happened. It's unprofitable, it's weak, it's useless, and as we see, there's a new order, a new way of doing things, and we've been transferred from our own old way, our, our own way of doing things, to His way, and that we freely, willingly acknowledge that He is the promise of a better life, and he is the promise keeper of a new covenant, a new promise. If you're on the fence, if you're undecided, if you've never yet gone all in for the stuff that we've talked about, maybe you're hearing what I'm saying, and you understand it in your mind, and you think, yeah, that makes sense. I understand. I get it. But if you've never gone all in, a full life response, if you've never jumped in both feet, taken the plunge, never just let go and, and just seen the, the, the life, the wonderful, abundant life that he has waiting for you, then what are you waiting for? God's word tells us we are to taste and see that the Lord is good and he is, he is so good. Taste and see that he is good. Taste and see that he is the promise of the life that you so desperately want. And he is the promise keeper of that life as well. He's more fruitful. He is a better way of doing things, of doing life. So if, if you're on the fence, if you're hearing me and you're, you're agreeing with me in your mind that you've never really jumped in both feet, do. 100% promise you that you will not regret it. More than my promise... He is making all things new, and he will do this for you. His order, his office, and his oath 
promised that. Amen? Amen. So we're going to take a couple of moments in prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And I want to take a moment just to, just to talk about prayer for a minute. And in the Bible, in God's Word to us, there are many, many different accounts of prayer. And there are many physical postures, how we use our body. There are lots of different postures described of prayer in the Bible. So Abraham fell upon his face before God. Moses prayed with arms outstretched. King Solomon knelt in prayer. Jesus prayed looking up to heaven. Communication, our communication with God doesn't require, we don't have to do anything physical with our bodies, but the physical way we use our body, the postures that we adopt, give expression to the attitudes in our hearts. So if you've been away for Easter, this might be new for you, but something that I'm really, really keen that we continue to do as a body is found in 1 Timothy 2, and that's lifting up a holy hand in prayer when the assembly is together. So when we are we, now, together, before God, every Friday morning, when we pray as a family, we lift up a holy hand in prayer. So as we close in prayer together, I'm going to ask that you join me in raising a holy hand in prayer. If this is new for you, that's all right. If this is making you a bit uncomfortable, that's all right. Just do it anyway. Everybody's got their eyes closed anyway. And you will feel, you will feel more part of what is going on here if everybody around you is praying and we're together and we're unified in the same spirit. And if you're one of God's frozen chosen, you've got your hands in your pockets. You will feel more connected. You will feel more part of this family if we, if we do things together. So, if you're uncomfortable, just do it anyway. It's fine. So in the Bible, an outstretched arm in prayer was a symbol that we are seeking God's mercy because we are never going to get there. We are seeking God's blessing, something that we said last week we know that we need because he is greater than us. So we're going to take a moment of personal prayer. Try not to fall down on your face before the Lord like Abraham. There's not enough space. We'll take a moment of personal prayer to think about today's message that Jesus is the better way and I want you to think about what we to pray about just for a minute by yourselves. What do we need to stop doing our way and give over to his way? And then I'll close us together in prayer where we will all together lift a holy hand in prayer. So let's take a moment just a personal prayer. Father God, we assemble before you this morning as your church. It's your church at South Fellowship, and we freely, we willingly acknowledge that Jesus is head of this church, and all we do is for his name and his glory and not our own. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it never returns void. We thank you for this passage in Hebrews that shows us, that teaches us that Jesus is the better way of doing things. Father, we pray that if there are those in our family who have never gone all in, never jumped in, never given a full life response to you, that today is that day. Father, we confess, we ask forgiveness, we ask your mercy for times when we have tried to do things our way, when we have tried to earn your favor, we've tried to earn your blessings, when we've tried to earn your grace, as mad as that sounds. We know we can't earn it. We know it's your grace, past, present, and future that gives us the life that we so desperately want and need. Father, we thank you for this beautiful country that we can live in and call home. 
for the freedoms we have to worship as a church, a church that lifts up your name in praise, in worship, where your word can be publicly and freely and openly taught. And we pray that you bless those in leadership in this country and your church here at South Fellowship. We pray that as we go back out now to the communities, to the jobs, to the people, to the friends, even to the countries, Father, that you've called us to be in in the week, that you go before us, you make straight our paths, that you fill us fresh with your Holy Spirit today so we can go out during this week and pour it out to other people as we minister to them and serve them as Jesus is ministering to us and serving us as our perfect and eternal high priest. Father God, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you in Jesus' name.